0: Morning. Before we get started today, um, I just want to take a moment to uh, pray over and address the uh, issues that are occurring in the Ukraine right now. Most of us have probably seen the news at this point uh, that uh, Russia has invaded uh, a sovereign nation. Uh, you may or may not be watching just the utter loss of life that is occurring. Uh, as artillery fire and uh, bombings and missiles and tanks are landing in metropolitan areas. And um, I want to say just a couple things about that. I want to caution those of us that are here in the United States, particularly, that before we begin to comment about that situation politically, that regardless of uh, how we feel about of the political situation here or there, what has led to this, that uh, before that we would remember that there are people suffering. There are people dying. There are people hiding for their lives. And that war and conflict is something that the Bible promises us, regardless of leader, regardless of political party. In Matthew, Jesus says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. As we pray for the Ukraine, our, our heart and our prayer is for people who are suffering. And our purpose is of any commentary about wars and politics is this, how can God be glorified and the gospel be proclaimed? Let's pray. Father God, we lift the people involved, um, whether uh, inadvertently or intentionally in this conflict, God, uh, those hurting, those running, those scared, uh, those putting their life on the line, God, uh, we ask for intervention, and for comfort, God. And we ask in all things that your gospel be proclaimed. um, God, that you be glorified and that we, the church, God, respond in a Christ-like manner. Amen. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. We've been going line by line through uh, chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Ephesians. And if you have kind of missed some of the Sundays leading up to today... Uh, We've been following the Apostle Paul as he continues in the first three chapters of Ephesians to really write a foundational set of doctrine, a sort of the theological confidence that we can have in the gospel. And so it's interesting that in chapter three, in some sense, as Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and is writing out a prayer, uh, he seemingly goes on rabbit trails. It seems like he gets distracted in the midst of talking about one thing and then thinks about another, and then off he goes down another rabbit trail, except that uh, we know that because this is Holy Scripture and that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that all of it is beneficial for us. And so even though it seems like he continues to be distracted, it's amazing that he is distracted by the the depths of the mystery of the gospel and and what is laid out in scripture for us that we'll go through again today is is for our benefit. So that we can be taught, we can be realigned, we can be encouraged, we can be corrected. All scripture is profitable for teaching. So every time we open the Bible, it is with the intention that we would not remain the same after we have experienced it. That that, that you can't touch scripture and stay the same because it is God's word realigning you to his walk, to a pursuit of Christ. And so we're going to pick this up in verse seven. And today we're going to be going through Ephesians uh, chapter three, verses seven through 13. So we'll start on verse seven. It says this, Of this gospel, this is what Paul has been referring to now for the first part of this chapter in which he talked about the mystery of the gospel, uh, which we heard about last week. Of this gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now if you remember anything about the story of the apostle Paul, his name was Saul and he was a persecutor of the church, he was a religious zealot, that was tracking down Christians in the early church, putting them in prison, having them beaten. He was at the orig- the very first martyr for Christ, which was Stephen, he was at that stoning, he participated there in that. He was actively persecuting the church and then we get to this verse 7 because this is years past now after his conversion when Jesus meets him on the road. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, a better word here than just given is is conscripted or drafted. Some of you may have been drafted into the military, probably not a lot. Mostly, I get drafted into chores for my wife. But, but back up quite a few decades, and we had this thing called the draft. It was involuntary service. Amen? Yes. You got drafted. It's not because you chose that. It's because you were chosen. And Paul is saying, listen, I didn't choose to be a minister of the gospel. I got chosen. It wasn't my choice. In fact, we remember where Paul was headed. He was headed to more persecution when he got drafted. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Anyone in in vocational ministry, hopefully, was drafted in. We didn't choose this. I can tell you personally, I did not choose to be a pastor. In fact, if I back up far enough, I didn't even want to be in ministry at all. And then, not of my own choosing, God starts to, pull me into things. And I, I remember the day that I started really working in adult ministry because I was at a coffee shop with my best friend and I was complaining about my favorite subject to complain about was the lack of an adult Bible study at our church. And it was at least the 18th time that I'd had this conversation. And mid-sentence, as I'm complaining, finally the Holy Spirit breaks through and is like, listen, idiot, it's, you're supposed to teach the thing. And I remember stopping mid-sentence going, and I looked up and he was looking at me like, did you, are you, how do you choke on coffee? Like, it's weird. And I was like, oh no, I'm supposed to teach it. And my friend goes, yeah, you are. I was like, no, oh, I got drafted in. I didn't want any part of that. And I remember as I'm teaching in these adult Bible studies, feeling like I have no idea what I'm doing at all. I remember as God continues to pull me in, and next thing you know, some pastors convinced me to preach. Listen, y'all, it was bad. You think this is bad? It was bad. And I and and I remember just I'm just following the, the, the Holy Spirit. I'm just listening to God. I'm just worried. Next thing you know, I've been preaching a bunch, and I get ordained, and I'm like, how did this happen? How does it sneak up on you? Let me be very frank. Over the course of the past seven or eight years, I have lost count of the number of times that people have told me, when are you going to go be a senior pastor? When are you going to go apply and be a senior pastor? I was like, man, what are you talking about? Well, everyone wants to be a senior pastor. I was like, I don't want to be a senior pastor. That sounds awful. (laughs) You seen how much those guys hurt? And yet... The, the, we don't choose where God's going to lead us. We stay sensitive and obedient to the Holy Spirit, and we go where God leads us and to the situations that he leads us in hopes of pursuing Christ, because only where Christ is is where the power is. And the moment you begin to think that what you're going to do for the Lord, you're going to come up with on your own, is when you're in really dangerous territory. Now, I've been talking about my story really in vocational ministry as I I worked as a lay pastor for uh, about 10 years and then very recently as a vocational minister. But let's back all the way up to remember that this idea of minister uh, is is no longer actually a vocational thing. So all the way back, if you go all the way back to uh, Exodus... And, and Leviticus, and right at the beginning, the second chapter of Numbers, there is this idea of vocational uh, priests. Right, and and so they were the sons of Aaron. They were called the Levites, was the tribe of Levi, and the Levites were like professional clergy. So this is where this idea comes from. It's way before Catholicism. We had this idea of professional priests, and and, and if you go all the way back to remember what that was, God said we were talking about tithe earlier, right? Your first ten percent. God said that the firstborn child of every family was by right His. Because your first fruit belonged to God. So if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, your first child belonged to God. It was his to do with as he wanted. Sorry, Avery. I, you know, it was, it was nice having you here in the house for 16 years or so. But you get to Numbers, and he says, but. Instead of taking every firstborn child, because by right, that's mine, I'm going to instead take this tribe, the Levites, and they're going to be my people. They're going to be the service for the temple. They're going to do the sacrifices. They're going to take care of the, the, at that point, the tent before the temple. And so we had this idea of this professional clergy, these people that were set aside just to do religious things. Here's the problem for us in America. That changed actually after Jesus came. And so suddenly we get to the New Testament and this new creation because of the blood of Christ and we have this thing called a royal priesthood. And it's no longer the sons of Aaron. It's no longer just The Levites, because that separation between us and God, that that giant curtain that separated the Holy of Holies and all of the other people, that tore down the middle at the point that Jesus died for our sins. And so now every believer in Jesus Christ has been drafted into ministry. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a minister nobody's off the hook y'all got drafted run all you want he's got longer legs (laughs) of this gospel which i was made a minister according to the gift of god's grace which was given to me by the working of his power you know I, i thought about just I don't know how many of you guys have just read stories about like old pastors um, in the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, any of our church fathers, I read any of their biographies or their stories. There are, if we would spend just a little time listening to the testimonies of various people over the course of the last 2000 years that have obediently followed God and what he's done through their lives, we would never have a faith problem. You wanna talk about a powerful God, go read George Mueller's biography. Go read Bonhoeffer's biography. Go read C.S. Lewis, an atheist, and how God just tracked him down and transformed him. If we were just better historians, we would be shocked at the display of God's power through his people. And Paul realizes this of this gospel which I was made, I was drafted, I was, cons- I was conscripted to be a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. It was not in me to do this, God did it to me. Verse eight, to me, though I am the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, there's a, there's a play on words that we can't see here in English, but in Greek, uh, linguistically, uh, Paul is taking words, that do, he's making words up, okay? There's, it's not really a word. It's like saying strategery. <laughs> he's just making stuff up. It's not a real word. And he's actually taking the word least, and he's making up a fake word like leaster or leastest. He's just adding things together that don't make sense. And he, and there's actually a little bit of a play on words that, that there's no real translation for, but it kind of matches with his, his name that God gave him, which is Paulus in Greek. And so it would be, the best translation would be, he's basically saying small Paul. He's making a little play on words to say, look, I'm, I know that I am not capable of what God's doing through me. Paul was thought to be um, not very good looking and actually a pretty small guy that was just less than common. And he's saying, Look, I am little by stature, I'm little by name, I'm little morally, I, I, I'm even smaller spiritually, and I'm the least of all Christians. Paul wrote most of our New Testament has a very clear view of himself. He's not exaggerating here. We'll see that he's consistently saying this in other letters. When he writes to his protege, who he's mentoring, Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost sinner. A clear view of his deficiencies. In First Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul knew full well his deficiencies And it's why he had such a high view of God. One of the problems in the American church is we have too high of a view of ourselves. And what that does is it constantly distorts our view of God. If we had a real clear view of ourselves, we would have a very high view of God. If we had a clear view of our own efforts and our own vanity, we would really have an appreciation for the power of God when he begins to work through us. It is generally our own competence that gets in our way. Paul is listing three purposes in this passage for this gospel for which he was made a minister. And so one of those things is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches. Now, we don't have a good word for unsearchable, in the actual Greek words. We, in the ESV, we put unsearchable, but that could be Uh, supplanted by a bunch of words, they still wouldn't be exactly right. Um, Inexplorable riches, untraceable riches, unfathomable riches is probably my favorite, inexhaustible riches, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite riches of Christ. Verse nine, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Now, this is the second time we're going to hear mystery. We heard mystery last week, and 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 just to um, to 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 reinforce this idea, mystery in Greek is mysterion. It's not murder mystery. It's not uh, dark ominous mystery. It's previously unknown and hidden, but now revealed that we all can see. And so. Uh, What does this mystery mean? We're going to go back in and cover this again because Paul's covering this again. What this mystery hidden for ages uh, by God is. But I want to say this, and and we're going to walk through this mystery. Frequently in our lives, God works in ways we don't understand. Amen? Amen? In fact... I would go so far as to say, most of the time, when God is working in your life, it is in a way that you don't understand, and let's be really honest, probably don't agree with at the time. God, listen, I wrote the plan out already, okay? Bullet point five, you are already off track. Now, those of us that are planners, we are very unsettled by this idea that God continually works in mysterious ways that we can't predict because we would love to predict it. The reason we'd love to predict it is because then we could feel like that we were in control of it. And we want to be in control of it because all the way back in Genesis 3, at our heart's desire when sin entered the world, it was because I would rather be God than serve God. And so in us, in our sinful nature, at our core is always a desire to be in control. And it's what pushes back, not just at God's plan, but at God's truths. So how come when I open the Bible and I read the Bible and it tells me something I don't like, I assume that I'm right? You ever wondered that? Do you know, every time that you open the Bible and the Bible disagrees with your feelings, it is really this debate. Who's right? You or God? You or God? But how often does your flesh go, that can't be right? He doesn't mean me. He means Karen. Karen. Right? Every time I open it up and, and I read something, and I go, oh, gosh. Bear one another's burdens. Outdo one another showing honor. Oh. Bear with the failings of the weak, Romans 15.1. one. Bear. Those who are strong have an obligation to the weak. Oh, you don't like that word. Obligation. I don't have obligations. I have rights. (laughs) I'm going to show you those rights in the Bible. They ain't very good. (laughs) The other thing about this mystery is not just that God continues to work this way in our lives. I want you to consider that with all of the prophecies In the Old Testament about Jesus, no one saw this coming. Everybody missed it. Everybody missed it. The most vibrant thing about a life pursuing Jesus Christ is that you're never going to be able to predict it. And listen, you don't want to be able to, if you, in your human understanding of God could actually predict how and when and where God was going to work, wouldn't he be a dull, boring God? Would he really be God? The, The very fact that we can't predict it and that we're forced to listen, listen, this is the formula that we're forced to get up every single day and go, Hey God, where are we going today? creates a dependency in which we can never do it without God, which is actually why and how we were created to walk in dependency with God. I, I, was, I was reading uh, recently in a book about the common distortions of God, that, that uh, one of the most common distortions of God, and then I was talking to somebody recently about this, and they had the same view of God, and, and it's, God is like this distant ogre you know, he's kind of judgmental and wrathful, and he's like far off. And so, you know, we, we sort of pray to, we send prayers to God because he's far away. And every once in a while, if we're paying attention, like, Ugh, he throws a long-distance message to us. And it's such a distortion of, of how God works, because all we have to do is open up the Bible and, and go to Genesis, and, and was God far off? No, he's walking with Adam and Eve every single day in the garden, Right? He's walking with them. He's not far off. He's not far away. He's not like a long distance call or a Zoom call. Have I mean, you done a lot of those lately? No, he's walking with them in the garden, talking to them, in relationship with them. And that is the God of the Bible for you and I. He's not distant. He's walking with us. And so any formula, listen to me, any distortion in which you think, I've figured out the formula of God, I figured out how he's going to work and where he's going to work and what he's going to do, and now I don't need him, is the lie the serpent told Eve. If you'll just eat this apple, you won't need God because you'll be God. The first of the three purposes that we see in this passage for this gospel is to preach the unsearchable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite, illimitable riches of Christ. And we've spent about three weeks in Ephesians talking about those riches. Verse 10, let's go to the next one. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Second, second purpose is this. Uh, second purpose is to bring light to the mystery of the gospel. And we're going to cover that here in verse 10. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to read that again because that's a really strange concept that we only see a couple other places in scripture. I want you to catch what this is saying. So that... Right? This mystery that's now been revealed to all of us that, that Paul's preaching, that we're preaching the gospel that we're declaring so that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So not only does this imply that nobody saw Jesus coming, that no one really understood what the gospel was going to be even though it was prophesied that, that Jesus was coming, even though that was the plan the whole time. Not only is that the case, But what it's actually saying is that not even spiritual creatures, not even spiritual authorities, not even angels, demons, Satan, knew the gospel was going to come the way the gospel came. No one knew. So, so, so this idea of the gospel, and just to be really clear, the gospel is the idea that we brought sin into the world by our free choice in the Garden of Eden. And since then, we've passed sin down from generation to generation, from Adam and Eve all the way until now. And in us, that sin created a debt and a barrier and a wall between us and God because he's holy and we're not. And holy just means his character and we were not of his character. He could not tolerate sin. It created a debt and a barrier that had to be paid and we couldn't pay it And the gospel says that his plan all along, knowing this was the case, his eternal plan was that his son, Jesus, part of the triune God, would come to earth incarnate, wrapped in flesh, putting off some of his actual characteristics as a God, live as a man, perfect, holy, blameless like we could never do, and then die for us as a sacrifice for his enemies so that in his blood, the reason we sing power in the blood, his blood would pay the debt that we had accrued and grant us access to the Father and that the Father could then walk with us again and not see the sin that we have because we're covered by the blood of Christ. That this idea... And that it would not simply be for the Israelites, but that this gospel would be for all men and women of all nations and all countries and all time. That no one, including angels and demons, actually knew this because if Satan had known this was the plan, he'd have never pushed to get Jesus on the cross. So they recognize the son of God. We know that demons recognize the son of God. We know that Satan went and tried to tempt Jesus. We also know that it was part of Satan's purpose to push men to kill Jesus, not knowing that this was the plan all along. There's a mystery for you. Now, this verse says, and we see this backed up in either first or second Peter, That angels and demons, so authorities in spiritual places, are seeing and discovering the manifold wisdom of God slowly, not all at once, through the church. That's a a very interesting concept that we're going to come back to in a minute. That God is allowing them to see his actual gospel of reconciliation lived out through the church. And if we we, uh, go to the letters that Peter writes, he'll say that they can't look away they're enthralled by God's gospel through the church. Now, this is, this is a little segue that we've got to cover, and, and this is a pet peeve of mine. And I do it all the time, so I'm not mad at you, I'm mad at myself. I say this all the time. I get up in the morning I say, I've got to go to church. But that's actually very inaccurate because the church is not a building at all. This is just a facility. And, and, and every time you see the word church in the Bible, they're not talking about this facility on 48 Manor. They didn't even know it was here. I mean God did. They're not talking about a building. The the church, every time you see it referenced, is not a building. The church, every time you see it referenced, is not ninety minutes on Sunday morning. We're all in agreement, yes? Okay. Let's make it sure it got really quiet. The church, every time you see it referenced, is not a set of professional clergy. The church, when you see it referenced, is not pastors or people that are ordained. It's not elders. It's not staff members. It's not worship leaders. When you see church, you're seeing every Jesus following believer in community with one another. That's church. That's church. This is why repetitiously you have heard us come back to this idea that we can't really be a church until you, say me, until you are living out the calling that God has on your life. We're not actually a functioning, healthy church until you, say me, are living that out, are obediently and uh, sensitive to the work of God and going, man, I think God's calling me here, and it sounds wild, and I would have never predicted that, which is generally probably a reason that you should go pay attention to it, that until you are living that out, because if we had a church building or congregation, and 20% of us were really pursuing, what does God want me to do with my life, and where is he taking me, and who does he want me to sacrifice for, and humble myself before, and love and bear their burial, 20% percent of us were doing that, and 80 percent of us had a really okay-ish six out of 10 experience on a Sunday morning, that's not a healthy church. That's a show. Maybe a book club, if you read. It's not a church. It's not a church. J- putting a steeple or cross on cross in the back, that doesn't make it a church. We, we get that, right? Hymnals and pews doesn't make it a church. In 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 Ukraine right now, there are probably Christians hiding somewhere, worshiping God. Maybe in a building, maybe in a tent, maybe in an apartment building. Back in first century, maybe in the cellars, underneath the streets, hiding from the Roman government. It's not a building. It's not an environment. It's people who God has redeemed, recognizing you're now part of a royal priesthood, an ambassador, a sojourner, a missionary, a foreigner in a foreign land, right? Who've been given a message of reconciliation, who the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to and is now being shown to the world through how we pursue Christ, not just individually, but together. That's the church. That's what's showing angels and demons the manifold wisdom of God. Therefore, the reason we keep coming back to, man, it is Christ in you, say me, that is the hope of glory. It is not Christ in Daniel, Christ in the pastor, Christ in the staff, though they're part of it. It's Christ in you, say me, that is the hope of glory, and if we can't get the mobilization of the royal priesthood meaning the mindset change that every single day I wake up and I go God my life is yours you've redeemed it you bought it on the cross I gave it over to you I realize I couldn't do it on my own I don't know where you're going to lead me because I can't predict your plan because I don't have a formula because if I had a formula I'd put you in a box because then I could be God and I wouldn't need you So I'm going to wake up and go where are you leading Where do I gotta go? How do I die to myself? Pick up my cross and follow you. And it changes everything. Nothing's the same after that. And listen, you don't want it to be the same. Nobody wants to go back to life before Jesus because I'll be honest, it wasn't easier. It was just how do I numb this in different ways? I want you to listen to Paul say this exact same thing to a church in Colossae. He's going to say the same thing. He's trying to get the same point across to them that he's trying to get across to Ephesus that I'm trying to get across to you in Bakersfield. T- verse 24 of Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. You guys. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among you, the Gentiles, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Say me, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. Christ in you is not just about you. It's the hope of glory. It is the hope of the world, Christ in you. If Christ cannot mobilize you to utterly change your life from Monday through Saturday, then he's not the hope of the world. He's not the hope of glory. That's a high calling, amen? That's not about 90 minutes at church. That's not about giving 10%. That's not about some some weird task list. That's about a vibrant pursuit of Jesus Christ that changes your life so transformatively that you would never go back to where you were before, which is what happened to Paul, which is what he keeps trying to express and why he keeps going on rabbit trails like me. Christ in you, this is the hope of glory. This is the big idea. Purpose number three, of this passage is to display God's wisdom and plan through being the church to display God's wisdom and plan through being the church. Do you realize that what Paul is saying here is that God is in heaven pointing all of the angels to you and I, the church and showing us off. Like we think of Job, right? We read the story in Job where he's talking to Satan and he's like, have you considered my servant Job? He's doing that about you, say me, today. He's saying, have you considered my servant Karen? Have you seen what I've done in her life? Have you seen how she's changed? Have you seen how she seeks me now? Have you seen how her life would be... Utterly wrecked to go back to what she was at before. The manifold wisdom of heaven is captivating to angels and demons because God has shown his wisdom of reconciliation through what he's doing in us. That is an amazing concept stuck in the middle of this. This goes back to his earlier uh, work in chapters one and two when he calls us his masterpiece, his new creation. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would just, this is yet another time in the New Testament particularly where God will call the plan of the gospel an eternal plan, meaning this was always plan A. This was never the backup plan. This was never the plan like, oh man, I had a plan, but then y'all messed up my plan, I had to have a backup plan. This is always plan A. Your life, most of us have made a lot of mistakes in our lives. Amen? I mean, some of us have devastated relationships. We have devastated our lives. We have just wrought destruction. If we look behind us, the wake of our sin has just wrought all kinds of failure and misery. And so we can't ever look at that and think this was plan A. Most of us think we're on plan F. This was plan A. Because God knew what that wake would look like and he knew you would have put him on the cross yourself if you were standing there that day and he came and died for you anyways. It was an eternal plan. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now that, that same concept has come up earlier, this idea that you could walk into the throne room of God with boldness and confidence The story that uh, Vance used a couple weeks ago is, you know, Lincoln's son walking right through all the security in the White House and like taking guy with him and just walking right in and like, dad, this guy needs to meet with you. That kind of boldness and access, because we're now heirs. We're now sons and daughters of the king. Therefore, we're not we're not serving a distant ogre. We're serving a God that loves us, that came for us, that wants to talk to us and hear from us, that we worship, that we speak to, that we we lay all of our burdens on. That God, boldness and confidence. We tend to have a, a lot of boldness and confidence in human things and be very passive in our confidence in the Lord. And I just want you to notice how Paul has no confidence in himself at all, but he has ultimate confidence in God. This is, this is living an expectant life where we continue to pursue God at such a rate that we don't consider whether or not we, of our own power, will be able to get something done when, the, when God's leading. We're, we're living in these, these faith spaces where either God's going to look like a God of miracles or we're going to look like idiots. Perfect spot. God loves you there. Why? Because you will desperately cling to Him throughout those circumstances. Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians 15 that if this whole gospel thing's not real and we're not really getting eternal life, that we should be the most pitied people on earth. That means that our life should be spent out in such a way that, that if God's not real, we should totally look foolish. And if we still look good, if we still look like we got it all together and we're doing it all of our own power, that would be a problem I want to I finish this uh, verse 13. I want to go back to something that, that is referenced here that I think is really, really important, that I think we miss a lot. Verse 13 says this So I ask you, the church in Ephesus, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul wrote most of these letters from prison. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was shipwrecked multiple times, he suffered a great deal. But I want to uh, go back to this idea of manifest wisdom, because I've read and that's in verse 10, I think, I've read this verse over and over again, and I think I've missed this every time, it says in verse 10, so that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. In Greek, uh, manifest wisdom is actually a really interesting term. It's actually a poetic term. So it's not a translation you would expect to see. In fact, that phrase you will not see in the Bible unless you go all the way back to the Septuagint, which is the early Old Testament. You'll see that exact poetic phrase used to describe Joseph's coat. The coat of many colors. The multifaceted coat. That's the phrase used here for wisdom. A multicolored, multifaceted coat. Wisdom. What is the reference? Why is the, why is he using this poetic term that links all the way back to Joseph's coat of many colors to explain the wisdom of the gospel that's now being made known, that was overlooked by everyone, including angels and demons, but now is being made known? What is he saying? Well, let's go back just one chapter where he says, you're not... Uh, Jews and you're not Greeks anymore. there's a new creation, there's a third race. there's no more Jews and Gentiles because I've created something brand new that's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's a new creation that includes all people, all races, all cultures, all languages, all backgrounds. And it's called the church. The church, is intended to be such a hodgepodge, a melting pot of ethnicities and backgrounds that everyone cannot ignore the reconciling work of the gospel. If the church can be explained outside the blood of Christ, then it's not really a church. If the church is just a bunch of people who kind of already like each other and have similar interests, then is it really the blood of Christ that's bringing us together and uniting us? Or is it the fact that we already kind of get along? We both think UCLA is is pretty uh, underrated and USC is clearly the best school in LA. (laughs) See? No. But according to our passage today, the multifaceted wisdom of God is so varied, it's so different that the angels are captivated by how God is reconciling cultures and ethnicities and generations together in the church. Do you see how this makes the church irreplaceable? Because where else is the world going to look for anything, any example of how different generations, cross-generational, different cultures, multicultural, different backgrounds, different uh, socioeconomic statuses, different political ideologies are reconciled together, loving one another, bearing with each other's burdens. There's nowhere to look like this. The church is irreplaceable the church is central to history and it points to heaven look at the church's impact across all of human history it points us directly to a picture of revelation where every tongue and every tribe is represented around the throne of Christ the church is central to the gospel what hope is there for unity and love in the world if we don't have it in the church? If Guys, if we can't get along and love each other, not tolerate each other, love each other in the church, what hope is there for a dark, broken world? And if the church was intended to be so captivating in the wisdom of reconciliation that angels can't look away, then to be the church that is described in the Bible, we have to continue to work on pursuing Christ in such a way that we would die for one another, regardless of whether or not we look alike, smell alike, think alike, vote alike. And the church, central to history, central to to the gospel, is central to Christian living, it's central to Christian living. Now, here's what I want you to hear. I am not telling you that you have to go to church to be a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. In the same way, you don't have to go home to be married. But if you don't go home for a while, that relationship's probably not going real well, eh? And if you want to pursue Christ and do it outside the body of Christ... I'm telling you, it's probably not going to go very well. Because on our own, without the encouragement and correction and accountability and love of the church, we will always be more lukewarm in our faith. We will always pursue Christ a little slower than we would together. We always tolerate a little more sin than we would together. We will always be a little bit slower to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit than we would together. That is the intention of the church. And listen, you cannot reflect the reconciliation work of the gospel on your own. Who are you reconciling with? It takes a diverse church that would not get along but for the blood of Christ, being reconciled with the work of the Holy Spirit to be on display, not just for the world, but for angels and demons to see the manifold wisdom of God. So what does that mean for us today? Let me give you just some takeaways to consider. And then we're actually gonna go in and uh, we're going to observe communion today. Uh, For those who haven't committed to a body of believers. Whether it's this one or another one. Hey, listen. You were designed and redeemed to live out the gospel with other believers. So here's my message to you. Come home. Come home. Maybe this is that home. Maybe not, but there is a Listen to me, there's a church for you. There is a pastor who God called to shepherd and love you and teach you and don't neglect. Don't, Don't rob that pastor of an opportunity to fulfill the calling that he has over your life by running from the church. Come home. For those of you that have stood at the edges and been reluctant to engage in the work of the church because of past hurt that is real, because of busyness, because of distractions. Let me just encourage you with this. It is worth it. It is worth it. The toil, the work, the hardship, at times the hurt is worth it. The Bible tells you again and again is the hope of glory. The church is the hope of the world and the church is not a building. It is a body of different, varied, Multicolored, multifaceted, multicultural, multi-generational, redeemed, messy people. Doing our utmost to live out his glory. Christ in you. Say me. The hope of glory. And in doing so, being a light to a dark world. I don't know what it looks like for you to be more committed today to an engagement in a local body, but I just want to encourage you that it's worth it. Let me pray for us and we're going to participate in communion. Father God, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the gospel in our lives, God. And thank you for using the church to allow us to live that out, God. Bring us together in unity. Knit us together with your spirit, God. And let us be a light to a dark, dark world. God, if ever there was a display of brokenness, it's watching conflict in Eastern Europe and realizing now more than ever the need that a dark and broken world has for the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.